Um, let me ask you a question. Anybody have a knife on them? Any, anybody have a big knife on them a, or a larger one? Well, this is better than mine. See, I got the little micro deal. I, I meant to bring one of my hunting knives in here this morning, and I forgot. And I was supposed to have a uh, steel with Oh, and this is even serrated. I can't do this very well. You know the proverb about you know iron sharpening iron? So we were, I was going to bring in my, my steel and let you hear that nice sound, that, but, <laughs> you know, it's just not going to work very well this morning. But I want you to have that proverb in your mind as we begin. That was the lamest knife illustration I've ever done, my little micro. But you know that the process that Scripture is talking about in those proverbs of iron sharpening iron is a process that was applied to people's lives. So one person sharpens another. It's a process that helps us grow in our life when we sharpen one another. Contrast that in your mind for just a second to the picture of clashing swords with somebody. Now we're not in a helpful picture any longer. It's not a sharpening picture, a picture where somebody's going to grow. When you cross swords with somebody, we're here to do battle. And what we are going to talk about today really would hold up those two pictures of iron sharpening iron versus crossing swords with somebody as a significant contrast that we need as Christians to figure out how do we get a handle on some of this stuff. So I'm going to put up here a diagram and I, I know the words will be too small for you to read, okay? Uh, in fact, that's why I have a whole stack of these to give you a little bit later. But I want you to see a little bit of this, and I'll just explain through this for a minute. Uh, I borrowed this from Brian Clark, pastor over at Trinity Church in Bozeman, and then modified that a little bit from what he had, because it was real church-specific to his context. But you've seen something like this likely before, um, people talk about the to die for, divide for, debate. I actually like his words better, gospel core, biblical commitments, personal and organizational convictions. And it's a way of helping the people of their church kind of think through how do they hold that. I, again, modified that just a little bit for our um, context. But if you start here, let's go over to a definition. So moving out from here, they, they work like this. So we say these are primary doctrines essential to Christianity. They're non-negotiables, okay? Out here, secondary doctrines, large amount of biblical data that it's interpreted differently. Out here, issues of, cons of conscience, um, limited biblical data, we proceed primarily by inference. What are the distinctives or how do we um, hold those? What does that mean for us? We'd say these are Christian distinctives, like our Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. These are, this is what defines who we are as believers in the core. These would be more like denominational distinctives. Um, and we would say in a church setting, you may not agree, but we ask that you not try to change them. That's who we are as a denomination. This is our distinctive. And in a similar sense at the Bible college, it's like we have distinctives too. And we say um, that's where we stand and that's the position we teach from and so forth. And it's fine to have a different opinion, but not fine to be dissentious about it in that context, because you're there in that context um, to learn. 
Out here on this level, these are personal and organizational distinctives. And you might say, well, we do it like this, well, we do it like this, but you're not going to argue um, in depth from Scripture like that or divide with other people or anything like that. What kind of role do these play in the life of the church? Well, in that gospel core, these would be required for church membership. If you don't hold these, then you probably shouldn't be part of our church. You may be not a Christian. We'll get to that in a second. Um, not required for membership out here, but um, another church might be a better fit for you. You may, may be required for church office. It's definitely going to be taught as the official church position of, of whatever doctrine or, or practice you're talking about there. And out here, these would be um, things that we would say we'd encourage dialogue as a way of understanding and applying aspects of the faith. So let's talk about it. What do we do with differences? Well, over here in the gospel core, if somebody doesn't believe, for example, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, um, these differences generally require, require, can't say that word today, uh, formal church discipline. You really can't be part of our church and teach heresy, something that is outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. Differences at this level generally don't require um, discipline unless the peace of the church is being damaged. If somebody wants to be really dissentious about something and make this their big fanfare issue, yeah, at that point, um, it's not going to work very well. And out here, differences require humble dialogue. We need to talk about it, talk through those things with each other, um, but we're not going to remove people from fellowship if they don't hold the same way out here. Um, I'm going to get to some examples in just a second. No, I'll do them first. We'll do that. Examples. At the Gospel Corps, we put down here salvation in Jesus alone, the deity of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, call to pursue holiness in our life, and we could add others there. Some examples at this level, doctrines of grace, uh, church leadership, practice of ordinances would be things that tend to land in that level. Examples out on this level, we put a bunch of things like homeschooling, courting, politics, alcohol, birth control, worship styles, women's roles in the home, ecumenical engagement, how to observe the Sabbath, and we could list other things in that category as well. Biblical support for these. In other words, are these levels things that come to us from the Bible, or is this diagram just something that we made up, something that just comes out of thin air because it's a cool diagram? Well, we do have scriptural support for these things. Um, Galatians chapter 1, verse 9 would be one place. This says, If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. That's pretty harsh. We are not going to accept a false gospel. We can't. And, of course, you have scriptures that talk about us being willing to even die for our faith. So when we say these are the to die fors, we really might lay down our life for these things. Um, is there support for this level out here? Um, let me just tell you right off the bat, that's the hardest one to support biblically, the to divide for category. The two best biblical places you can go and that I know of to see this are um, in the book of Galatians and the book of Acts. Galatians being the stronger one, I think there, there was at least a, you know, decision made in the church council at Jerusalem that then went out to the churches and you watched how the Jew and Gentile 
Christians functioned quite differently in their separate congregations. There were obviously churches that were mixed, but some that were predominantly Jew, some predominantly Gentile, and they looked pretty different in their practice, and they had strong convictions about how they would live out the law and so forth. That was definitely a difference that seemed to create some approximation of what we might look at denominational distinctives and so forth today. That would be about the closest you can find in the New Testament. And in the book of Acts, the oft-cited example of Paul and Barnabas um, separating their ways, I will argue that though they did separate their ways and, and work on parallel ministry paths, that was actually a move toward preserving unity, not to break unity. They didn't they didn't separate as enemies and remain as enemies forever. They separated because of strong disagreement, and then they pursued parallel paths of ministry, but they didn't become enemies be, beyond that. They blessed one another in the work that the Lord had called each of them to do. That's the hardest one to biblically um, support. This level out here, we have whole chapters of the Bible that deal with the levels of, of difference among debatable matters, uh, preferential matters, however you want to term that. Romans 14 through 15, 7 is one example. Here's one quote, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Uh, we definitely have strong scriptural support for the fact that there are differences amongst us that need to be recognized and respected amongst different people, that we're going to hold different convictions, and that's okay biblically. So, having set that stage of something like this, we're coming back today to deal with this idea of unity in the body of Christ. And you know that the last chapel I preached, we went after that topic, and we tried to make that practical to where we were and address, like, how does that work out at Montana Bible College? And we began moving in this direction. Where that probably left you hanging to some degree is in a place of, yeah, that's good, but how? Like, how do I live that out in practical conversation with my roommate, with my classmates, with my teachers? How do I live that out on a daily basis in a healthy way? What happens when we do disagree? And how do we have that discussion in a healthy way that honors the Lord and doesn't lead us into relational carnage? What do we do so that we can deal with these differences that we have in a healthy way. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to move into the, the practical side of that some. I'm going to suggest three pitfalls that we need to avoid and three attitudes that we need to embrace. And we could say more about this biblically than what I will say, but that's going to get us started in a healthy direction in that. Three pitfalls to avoid three attitudes to embrace. Now, the document that I have printed for you and I'm going to give you has a couple of pages worth of writing and scriptural citation and all that, talking about those three levels biblically and going into more detail than I just did in my little overview for you. So if you want to read that, that's there for you and I want to give it to you as a resource to keep. Um, I will not say that I have arrived at the document of perfection yet. 
my perfectionistic nature would love to get everything perfect. And I won't say that I've arrived at that yet. You might find something in there like, hey, good point you ought to add. If you think of that, come tell me. I would love to perfect my document some more. Um, so I'm open to that from you. If you see stuff in there that you think could be said better, but I will say that what's there is flowing from Scripture and at least is a place to start in grappling with what the Bible says about these topics. So, I want to talk about then the ministry of disagreement. Let that title set in for a second. Ken Fenno is one of our board members. And he's the one who first coined that phrase that I know of and told me that, called it the ministry of disagreement. Can disagreement be a ministry? Iron sharpening iron? Can disagreement be a ministry? I, I believe it can, actually, and it should be. There's a sense where we need to be, as believers, sharpening one another. We need to be engaging with one another about truth, about scripture, about what we believe in healthy ways that lead to our sharpening so that we walk away from those conversations better Christians than we were when we started them, understanding scripture better, understanding how that applies to our life better, understanding how we see the differences better. Those are conversations that should sharpen us, not destroy us, not swords clashing so that we go after one another as if to kill each other. So what we're not going to do for the next few minutes is really spend any time at this level discussing matters that are the gospel core. I hope you hold those in common, and I hope you understand, though it may be hard, what has to happen if we don't hold those in common. That is a place where it's like, okay, there, there's not fellowship there. This is not Christianity any longer at that level. So we're not going to spend time there. What we are going to spend time in is these levels out here to divide and debate. What happens when we disagree? And how do we have that conversation in a healthy way? By the way, I will say right here, though there are issues to die for, there are no issues to kill for. Did you ever notice that? The Bible never commanded you to go and jihad, <laughs> if I can turn that into a verb, um, all the people that don't agree with you. So there are no to kill for issues in the kingdom of God. Let me see if I can set this stage for you a bit emotionally before we get into the really practical piece because it really does hit us emotionally. So if we deal with this all right up here in the intellectual, you're not actually going to get down to the level where you live. And we live where we deal with this stuff. So I'm going to give you some examples here. Um, when Christians disagree about matters of faith, we tend to disagree strongly. Why is that? because we believe that the truth is really important and it's incumbent upon us to get it right. Scripture tells us to rightly divide the word of truth and so forth. And so when we believe something like that, we study it out and we go after it until we believe we know what it says and we base convictions on that. So we believe things firmly and that's a recipe for firm belief to meet firm belief 
And you know where that could go. Because we believe these things strong, and we should. We want to get it right. It's important. We study the scriptures to arrive at conclusions, and when we do arrive at conclusions, we arrive at them because we think they're the best. Which means, by definition, we think we're right. Because I wouldn't believe it if I didn't believe it, because I think it's right. Right? So if I hold what I hold because I believe it's right, and then I meet somebody else who holds what they hold because they believe it's right, and we believe those things deeply and passionately, we have that recipe for a clash. Fireworks, swords, whatever illustration you want to use, we have the recipe for sparks to fly. And we believe that the stakes are high, and they are, because we are told by Jesus to take this gospel and, and spread it to all nations on earth and make disciples of everyone. And so we're going to be responsible for the way that we influence other people's lives. And we realize that the truth that we hold is truth that we're to pass on. And yet the truth that somebody else is holding is the truth that they're passing on. And if we don't think that's the same thing, then we have competition. Who's going to get there first? Who can teach them faster? Whatever. We start to go down those roads because we believe passionately in what we believe. Have you ever felt uncomfortable with the practices or teachings of other people that you think aren't quite right? Have you felt this emotionally? I think uh, probably every hand could go up. You've been in a setting and somebody starts to, and you're like, ah, ooh, no, ah. I don't think that's right. And you start to feel this level of discomfort in your heart because you're pretty convinced that that wasn't correct. Maybe more than uncomfortability, we feel fear. Maybe we feel fear that the positions we believe might be wrong and that I might lead somebody else to believe that. That's a healthy fear. The book of James says, not, not many of you presume to be teachers, my brothers, knowing that we who teach will be held to a stricter judgment. We, we're responsible for what we pass on to others. And if we pass on garbage, we're responsible to that. So there's a healthy fear. But you also may feel fear because you fear the influence of somebody else, especially about somebody you care about. You're a parent and somebody starts influencing your children, you start to feel that really powerfully. You're a youth leader and somebody else starts to influence your students, you feel it. You're a pastor and somebody starts to influence your congregation, you feel it because you care about those people. You're invested in them. You're giving your lives to them. And if somebody's leading them astray in your mind, you're going, this isn't okay. This is dangerous. I, I don't think this is right. And so you have a sense of fear that can come. And when we feel fear for someone else, we feel a need to protect. And that need to protect can lead us to take bold action. And we're back to swords crossing and we can get into places where we do battle. Have you ever noticed that it's easier to find the faults of other people in their positions than it is to see the faults of you, yourself in your positions? Maybe that comes from pride. Maybe it comes from just some blinders that we get on. We, it just seems so clear to us. We can see it. 
It's right there. It, duh, look at it. It's right there. It's so clear. And somebody else is going, uh-uh. I don't think so. And they're looking at that from a different perspective. And so we find it easy to think they're wrong because it's so clear to me. They're obviously wrong. We desire to win. We like to win. When you have a debate with somebody, we like to win. We like to be right. We would like to prove our point. We would like to have somebody else acknowledge that our point is right. And so there's a desire to win in us that can come into these discussions. And it can fuel debate. We feel threatened and attacked when other people start pointing out the flaws in our views, don't we? We, we give this good airtight argument and then somebody else starts quoting other Bible verses and things that seem to be going and we feel threatened in that. And it hits us emotionally when we feel it that way. Against that backdrop of how we respond and handle this stuff emotionally, I think it gives us now the framework through which to see why we are easy candidates to fall into the three pitfalls I want to give you. They're not rocket science pitfalls. The problem is we keep falling into them <laughs> because maybe we're stupid. I don't know. We fall into them because we're prone to it. Because of all those things that we just listed out right now, we tend to fall into them. The first pitfall um, is like the no-brainer of the century, but we sin against one another. That's the first pitfall. We do it in multiple ways. Um, we might speak negatively about another person behind their back called slander, and we, we start spreading negativity about that person. We attack maybe their character, not just their position. Maybe we sin by uh, becoming jealous of the following that they have. They have influenced certain people that we wished we had influenced, and we become jealous of them. No, that would never happen. Yes, it does happen. <laughs> Maybe we sin by losing our tempers and entering into heated arguments when we find those things that we disagree about and a desire to win and whatever factors it is and we start swinging swords instead of iron sharpening iron and we lose our tempers and we say things we shouldn't say and we do things we shouldn't do and we get into those places where we have sinned against other people through anger. Maybe it's pride, pride that rears its ugly head and we will not admit that our position isn't fully complete and accurate in every way, and we won't admit that somebody else might have a really good point, and we won't listen to another person because we want to be right. It's pride that comes in and, and fuels those things in an unhealthy way. It's sin. We can assume motives of other people. Oh, I know what's going on in their heart. I know why they're up to what they're up to. And when we start guessing, assuming what's going on in other people's hearts, we're in dangerous territory. A couple more. We can carefully craft our rhetoric, can't we? 
carefully craft our rhetoric to lead people to believe what isn't quite true, but we didn't say it. Oh, we didn't lie. No, no, no. We would not be caught lying around here. But the end result is that people were deceived, but I'm innocent. No, we would never be so crafty and sneaky as to pull one of those tricks, but it can happen. Obviously, God doesn't want us to fall into sin <laughs> against one another. The duh of the century. Maybe rather we could focus on what he does want from us, like Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's the kind of thing that we want coming out. This iron sharpening iron stuff that let's give grace to the person who hears us. Let's not let anything come out of our mouth that starts destroying a brother or sister in the Lord. Perhaps we ought to resurrect the old saying, if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. Sounds like a bit of a paraphrase of Ephesians 4.29, but there are times to just zip it, keep our mouth shut when we're feeling some of those things that cause us then to start speaking in ways we ought not to speak. Zip it. Remember who we are in Christ. So that's the first pitfall to fall into. We're getting to the wonderful, beautiful attitudes in a minute, but two more pitfalls first. The second one to me is one that we can easily fall into, and it's to wrongly assign enemy status. I want you to grab your Bibles right now and open up to Luke chapter 9, verse 49. Luke 9, 49. There are two stories that are back-to-back -back right here in the Gospel of Luke, and both of them have to do with this concept of wrongly assigning enemy status to somebody else. So beginning in verse 49, Luke 9, 49, Jesus answered, I'm sorry, not Jesus. John is clearly printed on my page, and I said Jesus. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. It, it seems that this guy didn't have official sanction from Jesus to go around driving out Je uh, demons in Jesus' name. But he was out there doing it. And the disciples saw him and said, Hey, 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 stop that. You can't do that. You're not one of us. You're not, you know, officially sanctioned for that ministry. Don't you do that. And Jesus goes, what? The guy's not against you. He says, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. It's easy to wrongly assign enemy status to other people who don't maybe do it quite like us or don't have the exact same thing. And I'm not trying to draw too tight of a parallel between that and here. I'm just simply saying that's a pitfall we can fall into. The next story continues in the next verse. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. 
But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, if you knew, I hope you understand some of the real deep tension running between the Samaritans and the Jews. And you understand, you've heard preachers talk about how the Jews would go all the way around Samaria as so not even to go through Samaria on their way up to Jerusalem. But Jesus is going to go through it and he wants to stay there. And the people of that village won't welcome him because he's on his way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple there. And they're against all of that. I won't go into the details, but they won't welcome him. And then look at verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? We're like, we're going to pull in Elijah here. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, in this story, neither the Jews nor the Samaritans honestly had true faith, but the point for us is the quick response of the disciples to make these people their enemies. These people don't like us. We perceive that they've sinned against us. They've hurt us. They've done something wrong to us. Fire on you, right? Why were James and John called the sons of what? <laughs> Maybe they had just that streak in them, you know, that was that quick-tempered, hot-headed sort of streak. But to wrongly assign enemy status, these, these people aren't the enemy. Jesus rebuked them for that attitude. We're not going to turn that into an occasion of fire on you. Um, again, I'm not trying to draw a, a tight parallel between exactly what we sometimes face and exactly what was going on in those scenarios. But what I am trying to say is that it's a common pitfall to fall into. Have you heard it coming out of mouths of people that you've known? I'll keep it in that realm. I won't make it first person really, you know, your mouth yet. <laughs> But have you heard that kind of stuff coming out? Oh, this group over there, and we start going after them. We, they, they are like the enemy. And you start seeing Christians who love Jesus and know the gospel. And if you were to hear them preach the gospel, you'd say amen to that. They're preaching the gospel, and yet they debate about some different things. And they debate starkly, but suddenly they've become enemies. And they attack one another. And they go after each other in ways that destroy other people's ministries, other people's reputations. Maybe the following or the influence that they have, we go after them. Those were negative examples I gave you. Maybe a more positive one would be in the book of Philippians. And if you want to, you can turn over to Philippians chapter 1. This one has blown me away for a long time the way that the Apostle Paul writes this and what he says is crazy to me. The letter to the Philippians, you know, is written from prison. And during Paul's confinement, certain other Christian leaders saw an opening to gain influence, to gain following greater than Paul more than Paul, to influence people more than him, to get in ahead of him. We don't know exactly, but he hints at it here of what's going on. Paul says that these people preached Christ out of envy and rivalry. Envy. They don't like the following Paul has. 
They don't like the influence he has. Something about that. And rivalry. Us first, not you. We want to get ahead. We want more people, more churches, whatever it is. And they're actually seeing themselves in competition rather than on the same team. But what does Paul say then? This is verse um, 18, chapter 1, verse 18. Rather than assigning enemy status to the group, Paul says, but what does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. He refuses to let them be on a different team. We're on the same team. <laughs> Even though they're competing in rival, that one blows my mind. If there was ever a time when the Apostle Paul should have you know, put the boxing gloves on, we're going to duke this one out. This is not fair. I'm stuck in prison and you jerks are out there trying to steal my sheep. What's wrong with you people? You know, if there was ever a time when he might have felt his hackles go up, there would be one. And it blows me away. He goes, nope, I don't care whether from false motives or true. The important thing is that Christ is being preached. And in that, I'm going to rejoice. And I go, wow, that's an attitude that I need to work on to maintain. The third of our uh, pitfalls to fall into is to focus on differences more than on unity. I want you to realize, and I mentioned it last time we were together, but that the overwhelming call of Scripture is for unity. I just did a quick, off the top of my head and skimming through, putting Scriptures down. This is not an exhaustive list, but I, I, I want this up here for you just for the sake of effect. Explicit teaching on unity. Mark 10, John 17, Romans 13, 15, 16, 1 Corinthians, I won't read all of those places. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, all over the place, 1 John, and I know that's not an exhaustive list. How many doctrines... For your survey of doctrine class papers or whatever, how many doctrines do you establish with that kind of scriptural citation? Strength. I just want you to know there's a lot of explicit teaching about this. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you in your Bible, I'm going to give you just a couple minutes of silence. I want you to look up randomly any of those. Take any of them. And I want you just to, on your own, read and just let those sink in. Flip to two or three of those if you need, if you're in shorter ones. But I just want you to pick a couple of those scriptures and consider it. Some of them are about love and the explicit teaching to love other people and how that looks. Some of them are explicitly against um, disunity pieces. I'm just going to be quiet for a minute and let you do that. thought about reading all of those out loud to you one after the other without stopping and then I decided it would probably take up my entire time. What I would like to do is invite 
a few of you, two or three, depending on the length of the text you choose, to stand and read the one that you just read out loud to us. At least a couple of you. I know you're all there, so somebody just has to take the initiative. Jump on your feet and do it. Stephen? Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Mm-hmm. A couple more. Mm-hmm. Colossians 1, or 3, um, I love that the NIV translates that, which love which binds them all together in perfect unity. All of those different things. Beautiful. Uh, Sam, I, I saw you had one. T- oh, the same one. Okay. One more. Yeah. Okay. To slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate. Good. We could go on and on and on. Here's my point. I wish I had a teeter-totter here this morning. Can you picture one right here? You know how it works. Um, I'm looking for the biggest guy in the room. But it doesn't matter. We could stack how many? One, two, three, four, five. You know, we could stack 20 over here. And... What happens so often in the church, we end up with people just coming to blows over a, a dispute about a, a doctrinal thing that's in like two different little passages and they're wrangling over it. And it's good. I mean, it's, it's important and all of that. But we end up fighting over that. And over here is this like mountain of scriptural stuff saying, but be at peace with each other, live in harmony with one another, forgive each other, take care of each other, love each other, all of this stuff. And, and we're willing to come to blows over this little thing. It seems out of proportion, grossly. And so I'm not saying that there's never times. We're not talking here about heresy, okay? We're not talking about false teachers. Which the, gospel, which the Bible reserves extremely strong language for, we're talking about people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who understand and know and love Jesus, the gospel, and, and we're going we're gonna to give all that up so that we can be right about this small thing? Boy, we got to be careful. And so we end up focusing on the disagreement more than we focus on unity, and it seems that the Bible would have us flip-flop that. We focus on the unity that he's called us to in Christ more than to overcome the differences that would otherwise so quickly divide us. Somebody will probably accuse me of being an ecumenicalist after today. Um, that word comes with some baggage. In one way, I would like to claim that I am an ecumenicalist. 
And, and what I mean by that is to say, I am happy. I love to get along with brothers and sisters in Christ from other churches. I love to. I love being with brothers and sisters in Christ from a, a larger mix of the body of Christ. I was at the Association of Biblical Higher Education, ABHER accrediting body conference recently in Florida. Every school, all 130 of them or whatever, has to sign off on a doctrine statement that's ABHEs that is that's thoroughly evangelical, solid, orthodox in every way. And yet there's a good, healthy mix of people there that don't see everything just same as me. And you know what? I find that to be wonderful. I love it. It's like soothing to my soul to be with the body of Christ in that way, to worship together with him. In that sense, I'm happy. If you want to charge me with being an ecumenicalist, sign me up. I am on it. Now, if by that you mean that I don't care about doctrine and I don't care what people teach and I'm fine to just get along with people who hold heresy, then I'm jumping off. Okay, that's not what I mean. And that I know is sometimes what gets attached. So be clear in understanding where those things are. We're not talking about not disciplining people who are in blatant, willful sin. Most of you, well, quite a few of you have had peacemaking class with me. Some have had peacemaking in uh, the intro piece we do in family development. We're not talking about not disciplining believers who are, are in sin. We're talking about how do we handle when we disagree with other people about things that, yeah, they are important. And we see them differently and strongly. But it's the way in which we hold our positions. I'm not saying that we don't argue for our position. We believe we're right because we believe we're right. We hold those things strongly, but we need to do it in humility, with grace. Oh, wait. That would be like attitudes to embrace, which would be the last place we're going to go right now. Those are the three pitfalls to avoid. Sin, just out and out sin. Oh, wow, we're out of time. Here's the attitudes. Ready? Humility, love, pursuit of truth. Um, let me close then with this. Let disagreement be an occasion of ministry. The ministry of disagreement. Let it be an occasion of ministry where you give grace to other people by listening with humility, by sharing with humility in a conversation that sharpens other people so that we continue to grow up in Christ together.